All right. Okay. I wonder if I have this muted. Oh, here we go. It's showing the speaker not X'd out, which I, th is it on now? All right. Hey, welcome guys. Welcome here um, to this uh, prior to Thanksgiving. Do you guys all have your plans sorted out? <laughs> yeah, this is going to be my first Thanksgiving without either of my kids in town, so think of me, but you know, good thing. Uh, daughter got married this week and it was awesome. And uh, slept most of yesterday. But uh, welcome to Central Vineyard. So I loved what Carl did, but did that, did, didn't they just kind of look like piranhas after the chocolate? I was like, Argh! it's like, yeah, they're like, yeah, I love studying the Bible, especially when there's uh, chocolate involved. But I was thinking about that, that first fruits. It's funny thinking about our kids. One of the best pieces of advice we gave our kids is that give them allowance so they can learn to be generous. Like, as soon as you can, uh, you know, the other piece of advice we got is read them the Bible before they know language. Tell them Bible stories, read them Bible stories, because their language skills will form around it, because stories kind of create, the, the process of storytelling in acting out stories creates who we are, you know? So uh, that, we found a really cool children's Bible that uh, had like, uh, you know, Jesus and the disciples not looking like white Anglo-Saxons or whatever, you know, some of those old, I, I had these children's Bibles when I was a kid where Jesus was all exfoliated with the hot oil treatment on his beautiful blonde hair and stuff, and we, we, they, they've got some, they really upped their game in children's Bibles. So we were um, reading those stories to them, and then uh, shortly thereafter, we got advice to give them an allowance. And uh, we were, did a little envelope system, and it was like save, play, uh, save, spend, give. Save, spend, give. And it's funny because uh, Kathleen caught on really quick being the math person. Like, well, here, this is 10%. This is this, this. Where Ian is like me. He's not a math guy. So he just said, I'm just going to divide it equal three ways. I'm not doing the math thing. So he would like get $3 and put one in each envelope and stuff. And then they would pray about it. And I remember it is uh, funny. It's like, Kathleen figured out that they get charitable giving receipts at the end of the year. And she's like, like asking me like January 1st, so daddy, when am I going to get my letter? <laughs> you know about this. And like, we're in like letters, we get mail. <laughs> you know, I just love how kids can be so different, but they both, both had their vibrant way of, and I encourage you guys, I know we have a lot of little kids in arms and stuff, is there, it's never too early to start modeling generosity with time, generosity with talents, gener relational equity, generosity. I remember uh, uh, going down and we had a, uh, a couple of homeless camps at the end of the street and just bring the kids on your hip and, you know, we would bake sandwiches together and stuff and go down. And I remember Ian would be on, I mean, I was just, I miss, I can't carry him now. He could probably carry me. But we'd pray for people, and pretty soon, this is before he talked, he would put his hands out and lay hands on people and pray. And I got, someone says, you know, it's really not responsible to bring your kids out there to, uh, you know, these dangerous places. I said, man, you know, all our food we eat is dangerous. I mean, you know, hydrogenated, whatever. So, I, I don't know. It, it ended up working out. As a father of two adults now, it worked out. 
And one thing that I found is it's really, I was even thinking about this wedding, thinking like my daughter getting married, how she's a lot more mature than I was when I got married. And, and Adrian's not here. And a lot more mature than Adrian was when we got married too. Uh, and it was, it's amazing because kids get to stand on your shoulders. You know, it's like, what's they say? The, the, the dwarves are taller than giants because they stand on their shoulders. I think Alan Bloom used to talk about that. And that's the opportunity. Our kids can actually learn to forgive quicker than us. They can learn to be generous and trust God before us. They can learn that the Bible st stories are things to inspire doing really fun things in the world, not things to feel like, guilty about. And uh, it was just a week to really celebrate that. But I was just thinking about the, the first fruits thing that our kids did with the envelopes. I really struggled with first fruits back in the old when people write checks days and I don't know, they used to do checks on paper and stuff like this, but I remember when they had this brand new thing, automatic deposit, and then Huntington had, you can actually pay your bills automatically. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is better than Ritalin for reminding doing stuff, because my mind's just, I don't know, that was long before your guys' time. But I wanted to, uh, we're going, I wanted to continue a series on like, just how we treasure and how we invest in what we treasure, and especially thinking this is a church going into this next new year, new season, one thing that's really impressed on me is I feel like this beginning picture that God is calling us to be kingdom artists and kingdom entrepreneurs. And this idea that like, there's so much creativity just represented in this room right now and represented with those kids up there. And the idea that the Holy Spirit wants to anoint your creativity to find ways to help others to flourish. For some of you, you know, maybe that's a role of an educator. I know people that literally have had prophetic gifts of administration. Remember, I was talking to someone who says, well, all I do is, she worked at this church and she did a lot of admin work. She goes, well, I just don't want my spiritual gifts. I said, well, I think you've got a gift of prophecy. Like, no, I don't. I said, no. Every time there's a totally complex, tangled up problem, you figure out how to build a clear system to address it with this amazing efficiency that frees up everyone to have less anxiety and be able to do Jesus stuff more. And you get it from God. And it's like there's so many creative ways that the, the Holy Spirit creativity is used. And also in creating acts and things of beauty. Like I, I even love this new, you like the new chair set up here? And like, it's like we're like, how do we do this? And Jordan just comes in one day and just like, oh, well, we should just do this. And it's like, oh, that's brilliant. It's like amazing just how many multi, multitude of ways for creativity to happen in the church. And what I love is just all the humble ways it comes through and ha some of the most inauspicious methods. I want to read this passage. I want to read two passages, and I want to tell you some things I was, I've been able to observe in the last like, uh, 10, 20 years that have in particular inspired me and hopefully uh, encourage you. This is a... Uh, let's start... Okay, I'm so used to reading the scripture that is printed on a piece of paper instead of opening my Bible. I'm like, you know, I need to kick it old school. I'm, I'm a big fan of analog Bible, and I encourage you all to get an analog Bible because if there's electromagnetic pulse or if the earth changes its polarity, which is going to happen, you're going to lose all your books. So definitely uh, consider going analog here, but... 
This is so embarrassing here. I also didn't bring my readers, which uh, no one warned me that I would need readers eventually either. All right. So some kid came in and took all... Go Bucks. Did they win? 37 to 3, so that we'll, we'll praise the Lord for that. Michigan next Saturday. You want to lead us out in a prayer for their victory? Um, I'm not supposed to say this. My dad actually, when he was still living, cautioned me. He said, you know, you really should get into football if you're going to be relevant to the culture around you. you and he was at a service once where I said, yeah, I've never been to a Buckeyes game. And he, he sternly rebuked me after that. He says, you know, you don't have to share everything. You can be vulnerable, <laughs> but, you know, don't share everything because that can build barriers for people if you don't... Um, I just married off my daughter, so that's my uh, excuse for being. So this is uh, Luke 21. Lord, be present as we read your word, I pray. Father God, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow is given more than all the rest of them. For they've given a tiny part of their surplus, but she poor, poor she is, she's given everything she has. Some of the disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, uh, the time is coming when all these things are going to be completely demolished and not one stone is going to remain on the other. Teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? And he replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and saying the time has come, but don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. A particular relevance to us. Uh, yes, these things must take place, but the, end, but the end won't follow immediately. Now, I really just want to stop it there because I want to talk about the temple. They're admiring the temple. Now, there's... There's a reason why this story appears twice, appears in Luke and Mark. There's a reason why it is coupled, those two passages together. The temple, destruction of the temple, is Jesus was not number one fan of the temple. He didn't have a little memorial brick saying, you know, Jesus, son of Joseph, donated to this thing in the temple to build this temple. In fact, um, he, when he cleanse the temple. He said, yeah, destroy this temple on a raise in three days. And one of the, uh, the testimonies in trying to get them to uh, crucify him was he said he would, wanted to tear down the temple or something like that. Like, if you spoke against the temple, that was like someone talking about your mom or something like that. It was a guaranteed, it was fighting words. And the temple was a vanity project for Herod 
And Herod was a puppet king of uh, the Roman Empire that basically gave the Jewish people kind of this illusion that they had some level of self-governance, that they got to have their own king, and he was able to tax them and such to build the temple that had not been, who had been in totally ruins prior to that. And it was really the temple that was so-called uh, the sacred image was a tool of empire. This temple was basically uh, a form of godliness with no power. It was empty. It was Ichabod, the presence of God. In fact, the very idea of God's cross-culture agenda to welcome all nations. And they set up a mini-mart for people to get their uh, sacrifices and change money in the only area that non-Jewish people were allowed to worship. So, you know, I'll, where it says, I will make this, my temple, a play, house of prayer for all nations, they said, well, that's great, Jesus, but we're going to take the other, we're going to just cut that last bit off and put the mini mall here, you know. So Jesus was no fan of the temple. But it's interesting is the most symbolic act of faux big corporate generosity in the ancient world was Herod's temple, the temple that Herod built. It, you know, it's one of those things like it was more than like when you have corporate folks take pictures with big checks or putting names on buildings. It was like one of the, in history, one of the uh, biggest attempts to appease religious people ever. And Jesus juxtaposes this with the poorest person he could set his eyes on. And the idea that someone of almost no resource, and in fact, in that culture, if you, were, if you were poor or if you were disabled, the religious elite would often have an interpretation that you did something wrong, or you must be under a curse, or if life isn't working out, this is maybe, who's, like for instance, who sinned that this person was born blind? Him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This is just an opportunity for Jesus to show up. Watch what I do. You know, and so this woman is highlighted. And by the way, one thing to keep in mind, Jesus said she gave everything she had. And you're like, well, what a jerk. He should have said, go and give some back because you got to eat, right? She gave everything she had. Well, keep in mind how the temple worked. If you had no family and no income, or if you were too disabled to glean in the fields in ancient Israel, you would go to the temple because they had a constant barbecue going on. And so many people, and you even see this when Jesus was presented at the temple, so many people were at the temple because the temple was the biggest food, kit, the food pantry, soup kitchen in history. The, the priest would take their portion. Instead of the priests and all their real estate deals, they got fed by the temple. They lived adjacent to the temple. But, you know, with all the different sacrifices of the Jewish people, you know, God kind of changed the story of Israel from all the other ancient Mesopotamian religions, saying, yeah, you're not going to do human sacrifice. You're going to kill animals instead. And those animals are going to feed priests and other people. And it, so... This woman, by being at the temple, would have been fed every day and had all her needs met because she was at the temple. So Jesus was not saying this person needs to starve to show how faithful they are. So when I, I think in terms of, I know 
uh, I've, I've known people that want to give a certain amount. I've talked to people who are in a situation that said, you know, that's so beautiful. Make sure you're paying your rent and you have your groceries. I've even talked to some people. Now, at the same time, I've seen some of the greatest acts of generosity with the people of the least means. I don't mean how many digits in their gift. I'm talking about like the idea of first fruits thinking with someone that is living on child support. And I've seen God multiply it. And this is what I wanted to share the story of how I've seen God use meager interventions to change the world. How God has used the smallest things to make the biggest difference. Because, uh, and specifically I want to talk about like engaging poverty. What I love is the churches are little entrepreneurial think tanks. They're, they're creative boiler rooms. They're, and how God is throughout history used small gatherings of Jesus people who worship together, who celebrate the Eucharist together, who take care of the widows and the orphans in their midst. And, and so many times these guys, half of them can't even ha- get jobs anymore because of their faith. So they're having to like redistribute money because several people lost their jobs because of their faith. Yet these little ragtag, struggling groups invented what we called hospitals. You know, the way that happens is, now it wasn't, they didn't have MRIs and they didn't have the, the really cool birthing wing with birthing pools and stuff. What they would do is they would go where there's a battle or a fight with the military since all the early church were pretty much 100% pacifists. They would go there and they would dress the wounds of both sides. And they, would, and they would create places of hospitality. And what happens, they often ended up nursing the wounds of people who were shareholders in their own persecution. Enemy loving. And that became a thing to the point now we presume that hospitals are just a normal thing. And we have programs like, frankly, I say, if you're homeless in Columbus, it's the best place to get sick because the emergency room's got to treat you. And we've got, I think of the medical care riches we have in Columbus. And just the idea that, you know, then the bill chasers might get after you, but the idea that people could receive care when they're in crisis was very abnormal in the ancient world till these little bands of Christians. And Julian the Apostate uh, was really annoyed by this. One of the final Roman uh, emperors that had a mat on against Christians. And it's like, you know, we, this this verminous religion spreads like wildfire or a disease because they, they, they care for the wounds of the wounded. They love their enemies. They, do, they feed the hungry. You can't really beat that. But think of this. We have whole things we take for granted. If you look uh, to what the church was doing in Victorian England, one of my hobbies in the last few years has been looking what these little ragtag Bible studies of even misfits, these are people that didn't really fit within the organized church, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, uh, George McDonald, Octavia Hill, F.D. Morris. Uh, and it was like this Pentecostal revival actually happened in Victorian England. And it led to the birth of social work as we know it. There was no real social problems. Octavia Hill was, uh, if you've gotten your MSW, you've studied her, but they kind of take out the fact that she had this Holy Spirit experience at these revival meetings. In America, they always talk about first, second, third wave, Azusa Street. 
Now, it, it, first of all, the metaphor says it. Waves have gone before you were here, and they will continue after you left. The waves of the Spirit kept happening. But there was this really controversial, charismatic revival of signs and wonders. But the difference was they didn't create some, like, you know, uh, European house of prayer where they all get behind walls and do this until God does something. What they did is said they read the Gospels and... Uh, uh, F.D. Moore sort of book called The Gospel of the Kingdom, which that title's been reused many times. And his idea is just do the stuff, and this is Victorian England, like basically do what the Sermon on the Mount says and God will show up. So they started practically thinking, how can we do Sermon on the Mounty, Jesus-y type stuff? And as they did that, the Holy Spirit started showing up, and there was all these like weird, uh, like paranormal explosions of the Holy Spirit happening, you know, people speaking in tongues, gifts of prophecy, divine healings, that followed. The first fruit was their creative engagement with one another and the poor. Their creative, and a friend of mine, uh, Barbara, she runs uh, the George McDonald's, one of the George McDonald societies. She actually uncovered in the uh, Library of uh, Scotland all the letters that Louisa McDonald had sent to Octavia Hill, discipling her through the process of creating social work. She said, basically, all poverty intervention needs to have a relational component, and people need to be dignified with friendship. And it's not just about the structure, it's about how you show up relationally within that structure. And, and then eventually, uh, Queen Victoria, one of her daughters, got saved, and she went in disguise because her mom would have been freaked out if she knew she was like, helping the poor. And she would go in disguise, and she would do social work for people, not knowing she's like the daughter of the queen. And then uh, Lady Byron, Lord Byron, if you know Lord Byron, uh, kind of left his wife and got together with Percy and Mary, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley, and they all went, wrote Frankenstein and Polidary the Vampire, and I'm reading Frankston right now, actually. But he, he left her high and dry, but not dry. He sent her a lot of money. So all this money that uh, Percy, who was renowned as being like a real, uh, let's say he was kind of a, didn't live a very uh, honoring lifestyle towards other people. But the money from his poetry, Lady Byron just decided to put it all in the ministry. And so she would buy rows of homes in Victorian England, and then uh, Octavia Hill wrote books on how to do social work. And she had some opinions that some of you may disagree with. Today. She said, women, men, men can't be social workers. They're just, you know, they're not empathic enough. There's too much bravado. They don't know how to be quiet and listen to people in our culture. So only women can be social workers and stuff like that. Now, obviously, uh, maybe that was right for that time. But she had a very opinionated person. But the fact is, she started something that most people, a lot of times I know most people I've known who are teachers in social work departments, a lot of them have identified as atheists. I'm thinking, do you realize your whole vocation came out of spiritual revival from basically this ragtag bunch of home churches that barely had any resources until Lady Byron came in and infused it, but they were already doing this faithful stuff before they even had resources. And uh, I want to think... I want to talk about something I got to see in Cambodia. Um, you know, one thing that has really began transforming Cambodia, the gospel, is our country was so good at welcoming Khmer refugees in the early 80s after the killing fields. And one of the most transforming experiences of my life 
was my church became one-third Khmer refugees, and my youth group became 80% Khmer refugees. Now, my church, we were on Henderson Road, adjacent to Upper Arlington, and I was one of two white guys in my youth group. It was just, I mean, what, what a weird experience going from my little suburban elementary school to youth group. Youth group, church is where I got all my cross-culture, and I didn't even, I didn't know that I would have this ongoing story with Cambodia. But, um, and then... Asia's Hope, and John talked about that a couple weeks, kind of being a culmination of a lot of that, but then we joined in Vineyard's church planning partnership, and uh, we are partnered with one of the churches, uh, it's called Cambodia and Vineyard, you know, really creative name, right? And so like I say, there's a couple vineyards there, but they were kind of adjacent to a bigger uh, uh, vineyard church, and all these folks, many of them barely speak English, they found jobs, mostly there are more elderly folks at this time doing really hard manual labor and in factory work. In fact, a lot of them are now on disability because they were doing work that wore their body down because, you know, it was hard to get kind of other jobs because if you're a certain age, it was harder to learn English. So it, is, it was as blue collar as you get, right? And they would gather money and send it as their church, the, uh, as their little, little ragtag Holy Spirit gathering of people would uh, try to discern how can we engage the gospel and realizing the idea, and this is kind of really a, a hallmark of Vineyard Missions, is we're, also, we're church planners, and if we can have a healthy local church, we can do community development. If we have a healthy church, can we do community development? In the, in the places where we, in the little villages where we have a thriving church, kids aren't trafficked. In the little villages, if, if, uh, if parents get injured or die, someone else will adopt their kids, and they don't end up needing to have an intervention like Asia's Hope. And there's countless villages, like, you know, the UN says everyone has to do foster care. Well, half the kids have been trafficked in Cambodia, if not more, ended up entering into trafficking through uh, uh, the UN paradigm of foster care. Because if you don't have a strong family system in the community, what happens when you have a thriving church? The family does all these little local churches. So I feel like we've been able to participate in this flanking maneuver against this evil desecration of these precious image bearers, whether it's dealing with the kids who are going to be in the pipeline or having small little ragtag local churches that help to transform the culture. And by the way, these villages are usually one street with tributaries off it. They're really small, and they're beautiful. Well, here's what this little ragtag church in Utah did for those, is they started businesses. Now, they weren't using any of the en vogue, like, hip ways to uh, engage poverty that, uh, that was, were being talked about in the early 2000s. They weren't None of these guys even knew about that. They would just do simple little things they would hear from God. It's like, well, uh, they held some build a donut business with just, and it was, I think it was like a $60 investment, and this person got what they needed to start giving donuts to people. And I was there when the idea came to, uh, sub, to subsidize rice, uh, healthy rice, because what happened is the Vietnamese cartels came in after the killing field and said, hey, we'll refine all your rice for you. It's going to taste much better. It's going to taste so much better. And 
it, you know, brown rice isn't as good, but what they would do is the reason they would refine everyone's rice for free because you used all the stuff you took out of the rice to make vitamins and supplements, which were very lucrative. So they took this amazing rice, took all the nutrition out of it, and it, there was a real, that's when you started getting more obesity, even in villages and stuff like that, or health issues, because people were, uh, didn't have as much nutrition. And what happened, that changed, the, the culture got changed towards being, uh, having food processed in a way, and you already had other kinds of poverty and uh, many other uh, deprivations. And you had entire regions, like the Prevahir region of Cambodia, where almost all the kids were low birth weight. And there were, because of lack of nutrition and folic acid and stuff like that in the diets of the mothers, you had a lot of kids built, born with cognitive limitations. And there was literally this one village in Prevahir, which I went there, and I was like, this is the armpit. This isn't where, no tourists would go there. Now, there was some Russian money laundering businesses there, but that was it. There was no other Western thing. We would go there, and that's where vineyard churches really seemed to thrive in the most, like, what seemed to be the most hopeless places. Well, I just want to tell you about one intervention that this little church came up with about 1,200 bucks. 1200 bucks doesn't sound like much right i mean and what they did uh and it was, this this changed kathleen's life because she was there when this uh conversation was happening and uh you know these nine hour going through these twisty turvy things to get to the village no highway to get there talks and but between this conversation with some of the folks from the cambodian church and other things this idea of came is what if we help people build little square foot gardens around their house uh, and do some teaching on nutrition and subsidize it? Basically, is one thing everyone uses amok spices for their fish to make fish amok and other things, and everyone has the Kamai spices. Well, what if we fortify the spices with folic acid and everything else that people need Kind of like they did with uh, bread or milk, you know, putting vitamin D in milk, etc. But then charged it just under market of normal white rice they get. Or, or, or normal, the spices, I mean. So you get a mock spice for how many, you know, 100 real for a little bag here, and we'll get nine, or 900 real for one little bag. And this is, I don't know, I can't do the exchange, right? Sorry, math. And so we're, we're not losing our shirt on this. But people are incentivized to get that. And then if, if, if moms, you know, even, no matter how poor you are, everyone has access to a flip phone. If you can text us a picture of this little garden we've helped you buy the seeds for, where you're growing some food and doing your own soil improvement, getting this nutrition, and only get fish that you buy during the, mon you catch in the monsoon season and dry them, because when the water's down, the fish have heavy metals in them. But when the water's up, they're healthier. And I remember three years later, doing a conference there, filled with fat babies. Fat babies who were reaching developmental milestones. Prava here has changed. Literally since the Khmer Rouge, they had not had a healthy generation of babies. And this started with $1,200 and through this Holy Spirit moment where people who weren't educated, and, and, and what's interesting is a lot of the intensive efforts we saw big giant like whether it's a, the un in partnership with other people in fact saying you're mandated to use this developmental strategy if you're going to get foreign aid or whatnot 
and it, none of it really worked. But what's thriving to this moment is what a local body of Christians relating to another local bodies with little resources and without, no one would have been impressed with their administrative abilities on the outside. That is the power of the widow's might. In fact, a lot of these people were widows. Or definitely all of them were orphans. There wasn't someone there who didn't have one of their elderly parents killed by the Khmer Rouge or die with the starvation of the killing fields. And so a lot of times there's, a, there's this tension put between churches, uh, local churches and relief agencies and stuff like that when really the history, 2,000 years of the churches, the, the local churches are the think tank to do things that work. And then Kathleen ended up going, uh, uh, I keep talking about Kathleen, she's on my mind lately, she got married. But she got to work, I don't know if you guys ever listened to the Freakonomics podcast. And when Stephen Levitt, one of the co-authors of the book, she ended up interning for him and working for his, uh, his uh, charitable organization that basically uh, does uh, this super analytic algorithms on poverty interventions. And they would get to talk a whole lot. And she would tell them about, she couldn't, she always talked about Cambodia. She would talk about two things, uh, the little church planting things and Asia's Hope, and tell them about how it, it kind of worked. And then he would come up, he would actually have the names for what that is now called, what people are doing, because maybe, you know, 15 years later, academia maybe is caught up to some of this thing, at least University of Chicago has, and saying, yeah, we find that that works the best. It's weird. These disorganized little church efforts do more to impact poverty than any other organized efforts in the entire country. All these storefront little churches, if you pulled them out, our nation would die. And he, he would, at least back then, he identified as an atheist, but he loved the church. He had a lot better view of the church in America than a lot of Christians. Because in his area of study, the only part he really spent time with was how, the church, how little churches impact poverty. And that helped her a lot. And so it was interesting to get a blessing from this guy and what she wants to do with her life and stuff, but also affirm everything she saw growing up as a little kid in our messy church. As a little kid in our messy church where I, I, I am going to write a book called How to Fail as a Church Planner, and what I mean is like basically everything I've done that blew up and do one-page ADD chapters, and I've got about 300 of them in my little note thing, God still showed up because it's not about me or anyone else. It's about Jesus. But I want to encourage you guys as we enter into this new season, I'm not going to be in the role of lead pastor. I'm going to be in the role of most excited, happy to be a member of Central Vineyard person in the city. And I just, in my spirit, and just with what little I know, believe we are entering a season where God breathes new life into that kingdom artist, kingdom entrepreneur, that, we, that there's new wineskins available to us, there's new approaches, or older approaches, made new again. And I just want to encourage you to fully invest your time, your talents, your resources, your creativity, your humor, whatever you have for this next season. So let's stand, and we're going to celebrate the Eucharist together. And the reason we do that, by the way, the reason any of these, the early church, what is the early church? Where people baptize and do the Eucharist together. And when we do this Eucharist, it's basically what we live out. When we share the body and the blood, 
This is a sacrificial life we lead. Good morning, everyone. As Jeff said, we now turn toward the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. We share together in this meal each week, participating in the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. Um, at this time, I, we already have the worship team present. I would also encourage our prayer ministry team to come up along the sides as well. We are here today because Jesus extends to us an invitation. Strangers and friends, believers and doubters, the certain and the curious, it is always a mixed company that Jesus gathers and invites to his table where in bread and cup he meets us. And through him, we who are different are joined together as one body. Come, not because you understand, but because you are understood. Come, not because of how you feel, but because God has food for you. Come, not because you feel deserving, but because Jesus invites you and welcomes you just as you are. Scripture invites us to examine ourselves before we come to the table. We become aware of our faults so that we can receive grace in our time of need. We confess so that we can partner with God for our healing. And we confess together this morning through the confession song. Friends, hear now these words of grace for us from Scripture. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As we share in this story, place yourself at Jesus' table. Imagine Jesus hosting you. Now, the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
friends, let us pray. Send now your spirit among us. Come with your presence in this bread and in this cup, that as we come forward and present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, we may taste and see your goodness be united in your love and become one body, your hands and feet in this world. Friends, here at CV, we have an open table. The bread is gluten-free, and we enjoy this meal by coming forward and dipping a piece of bread into the cup of juice. If you would prefer individually packaged wafers and juice, those are also available on the tables, but they are not gluten-free. I encourage you to come and eat. And as you come forward, we would also invite you to receive prayer from our prayer team for anything. We also believe that sometimes God speaks to us for someone else. So do let us know if you feel the need to share a word from the Lord uh, to pass on to those who are here today. With that, friends, please come forward and eat at this table. So friends, as you come forward, um, there were a couple words that were shared, and you can continue to make your, your way forward for prayer if you would like some prayer. But one specific word that was shared was uh, that there may be somebody with some stomach troubles, um, and there's going to be some prayer back here in this corner. So if you're having like some trouble with your digestive system or your stomach, would, would you just go back over in this corner and receive prayer? And then the second word that was shared was a word about just financial instability. If you're facing some financial instability in your life, and maybe it's, it's actually a little challenging to hear a message about generosity and, and God's provision and all, the, all of the coins dropping onto the floor of God's provision, we'd love to make sure that we pray for you this morning. So come forward for the Eucharist and stay forward for prayer.